This morning we're going to be looking at the book of James, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Now, we were supposed to have a guest speaker this morning, but uh, he found out that he had been exposed to the virus, and so here I am. And we were supposed to be at church at, on the Bethany campus today, but things have not go, gone as expected, and so here we are meeting together online. This is, a, this is a difficult time. It is difficult in so many ways. It's difficult on a global scale. It's difficult for those who are suffering with illness. It's difficult for those who are caring for them. Difficult for those who are trying to figure out how to respond to all this and how to contain the virus that is spreading so rapidly in so many places of the world. Difficult for those who are trying to find uh, an antivirus. It's difficult for you and I as we listen to all of the stuff that is the barrage of voices that are coming at us from so many different angles, the constant updates we're hearing on the news, on the radio, online. What do you do? How do you respond? How do, we, how do we continue to live? How do we survive? How do we keep our family safe? How do we provide for them? It's a difficult time. And it's times like that when you look at the words of what James writes here and you just scratch your head and go, James, what were you thinking? James chapter 1, verse 12 reads, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Did you catch that, that first part in verse 12? He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Really, James? How am I supposed to consider myself blessed when... Everything has gone wrong. And, and what is this steadfast business? What does it mean to be steadfast? Well, to be steadfast, it's kind of like a, like a spiritual, I heard one pastor describe it as a spiritual toughness. It's an unwavering trust and obedience in, uh, to God. How, but how is it that I could be expected to keep my cool when I'm having such a tough time? And 
doesn't it seem right that I should be able to blow off a little steam or give in to a few of those anxieties, those worries, or maybe get upset at least just a little bit? What about my, when my kids are going berserk and I've got all sorts of other responsibilities that I have to handle? What about when my car breaks down? What about when my boss has been coming at my throat all day long or my doctor confirms my worst fear? What about when I lie in bed with insomnia for the fifth consecutive night? Or when my family uninvites me to a, to a gathering because of my narrow Christian convictions? Or what about, what about this? What about when I discover that my spouse has been living a dark secret life for months? I mean, aren't there times when my behavior is justified by the circumstances? Shouldn't it be okay for me to, to raise my voice and slam a few doors when I've been treated wrongly? Or put the pedal to the floor when I've been cut off? Or maybe cut a few corners and tweak a few numbers and maybe even copy and paste a bit when circumstances beyond my control have prevented me from doing the job that I was hoping to do the right way? Or am I justified in, in distancing myself, maybe even cutting off communication with others completely because they've hurt me? Shouldn't I feel free to post on social media about how horrible someone has been to me or even abandon biblical teaching because of the way it now impacts someone that I love? Just like Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount, James turns everything upside down. And he says, blessed, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And that's our cue to resurrect that age-old question that every three-year-old knows and loves. Why? Why? Why am I blessed when I remain steadfast under trial? Why is it better to trust and obey God through difficulty? And James teases out several reasons in the next few verses, and we're just going to cut right to the chase and attack the first one. It's better to trust and obey God through difficulty, first of all, because of the life he offers. Because of the life that he offers. Take a look at verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Why is this person who continues to trust God and, and obey him through difficulty blessed? Well, James says it's because that person, after that person has been tested, they will receive the crown of life. Victors in the ancient Roman Colosseums, they would receive this laurel wreath as a symbol of their triumph. They had strained, they had suffered, they had endured. Maybe they even bled to come out on top and win the race. Because of that, they were rewarded. And James tells us, in the same way, there's a reason for all of that straining, all of that suffering, all of that excruciating perseverance that it takes for us to trust and obey God through difficulty. 
the reason for doing it, he says, is a crown of life that's been promised. Now, it's not a crown that represents life. Like you you may get a shiny trophy for doing a good job at a sporting event, but that trophy, it represents something. But but in and of itself, that trophy is really not worth much, right? I mean, it looks like gold or brass or bronze or whatever, but it's not. It's it's plastic coated with with some type of film on top, and it's just a, a cheap piece of wood there, and it's got a little placard on it. What's it good for other than to 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 maybe look at and say, oh, I did a good job, or or to use as a nice paperweight? In and of itself, it doesn't have any real value. But what James means when he's talking about this crown of life is that the crown in and of itself has extreme value because the crown is life. It's life that you received. It's not some exclusive reward that some believers receive. It's a crown of life and every believer receives it. Paul wrote about this crown in 2 Timothy 4.8. He wrote, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And Peter reminds Christians, 1 Peter 5.4, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so this crown is life in and of itself, and this crown is for all believers. It's called the crown of righteousness. It's called the crown of glory, the crown of life. It's that final reward that every believer is going to receive because of their faith, their trust in Christ. Now, you might be thinking, well, if this crown of life is a reward that every Christian, every person who trusts in Christ is going to get, then how does that motivate me to remain steadfast under trial? Especially during times like this, when the whole world seems to be falling apart. Why should I remain steadfast under trial if I'm automatically going to get this crown of life? But the reality is, steadfast under trial, well, that's what, that's what faith is. It's what faith is. When James says you're blessed for remaining steadfast under trial, all he's talking about here is living out your faith. He's saying this is what the people of God do. They place their trust in him. They link arms with him. They exchange their old life of rebellion for what God has to offer, and then they live for him. And the reality is, if you've placed your trust in Christ, in the midst of the greatest trial, the greatest threat known to humankind, and that is the wrath of God himself, The wrath of God has been revealed to all men. If you are a human being, then you yourself, the Bible says, are a sinner. And then you yourself were were destined to be a recipient of God's anger, God's punishment, God's wrath. That is the greatest trial known to humankind. 
And in the midst of that, if you have placed your trust in Christ, well, in the, you placed your trust in Christ in the midst of the biggest trial known to humankind. You said, Jesus, I trust in you. I'm destined to be squashed. I am destined to be punished for all eternity, but I place my trust in you in the midst of this trial. And that's how it all begins. But it doesn't end there. It can't end there. When you and I continue on trusting and obeying God through difficulty that comes into our lives, we're not really doing anything new. We're just putting into practice the faith that we had in God from the start. It, it, it needs to permeate every aspect of our lives. Like, like the creamer I put in my coffee. My faith, it needs to diffuse out into every molecule, touch every molecule of my life. My trust in God needs to flow into every single struggle, every difficulty, every awkward or painful moment, and it needs to powerfully impact it. One pastor wrote this, a genuine Christian is not someone who at one point in time made a profession of faith in Christ, but he's a person who demonstrates true faith by ongoing love for God that cannot be damaged, much less destroyed by troubles and afflictions, no matter how severe or long-lasting. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 12. He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life. It's definitely a reward, and it definitely is something that, that comes after something happens within me. I have to be steadfast under trial. I have to persevere, and then the crown of life comes. But the reality is, the crown of life is not something I can take any credit for. Yes, I do love God, but the love I have for God, the Bible tells me, I have because he first loved me, 1 John 4, 19. And any trust and any obedience that I demonstrate, well, that's all contingent on who God is and what he's done for me. When I travel from, from one place to another on an airplane, which doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, I get the reward that comes from being on that plane. I reach my destination. That's the reward that I get. But just like all the other passengers, I can't take any credit for that. I can't take any credit for getting myself from point A to point B, maybe on the other side of the world. It's the plane that carried me to that destination. All, all those of us who were on the plane had to do was trust it. Trust it enough to take a seat on it and then continue to trust it through every shudder and drop and turbulent bump along the way. Why do we trust it? Why do we stake our lives on it? We, we do it because of what it is. And we do it because of the promise that it gives of reaching the destination. Why do you trust God? Through difficulty. One of the reasons that you trust 
is because of the destination. It's because of the crown of life. It's because of the life that he offers. Traveling with him may not always be easy. In fact, most of the time it isn't. But the destination that he takes you to is worth it. It's better to trust and obey God through difficulty because of the life that he offers. As you experience difficulty in your life, as we experience as a, as a, as a church, as your family may be experiencing difficulty, maybe work is getting tougher for you, maybe the kids aren't able to be in school and you have to find somebody to watch them right now and you're not sure how you're going to pay the bills and you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet and all of that kind of stuff. Are you looking forward to the life that he offers? Are you remaining steadfast because of the life that he offers? That's not all Paul uh, James gives us. He goes on. Second point is this. It's better to trust and obey God through difficulty because hard times don't justify bad behavior. Look at verses 13 and 14. He writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. One of the biggest temptations that we face so often in life is the temptation to blame others, isn't it? Remember when Adam Adam and Eve were confronted in the garden by God? What did Adam do? Well, he blamed Eve. What did Eve do? Well, she blamed the serpent. In this case, James suggests that there are times when we'll actually blame God. We'll actually blame God for tempting us. Have you ever done that? Well, God, if you had not allowed this difficulty to come into my life, I wouldn't have done what I did. If it wasn't for coronavirus spreading all over the globe, well, I wouldn't be behaving this way, or I wouldn't be panicking this way. I wouldn't be giving into fear. I wouldn't be consumed with anxiety. I wouldn't be lashing out at my kids. I wouldn't be frustrated with my neighbors. I wouldn't be behaving this way and, 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 and trying to cut corners in my job. We justify our bad behavior, sometimes pointing at God and saying, God, you're the one that brought this on. Scottish poet Robert Burns, he wrote this, Thou knowest thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. You know what he's saying? He's saying that God is the one who made him with these inner voices, and these desires that try to convince him to do wrong. Some Jewish rabbis, they taught the Yetzer Hara, and that simply means evil impulse. And one rabbinical saying basically has God regretting that he made human beings with this evil tendency. Well, it's not your fault. You're not to blame for the internal impulses that you have that lead you to do wrong. That's simply the way that God made you. It's the yeser hurrah. Blame him. And James says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's simply not true. God doesn't tempt anyone. He writes, let 
No one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God doesn't tempt anyone. Why? Because he can't. God can't be tempted with evil. Now, if I were to tempt you to try to do something evil, let's say I came up to you and said, hey, you want to hear something uh, terrible about Pastor Joe? Well, if I did that, then I would be trying to get you to give in to gossip. And we all know that gossip is wrong. But not only would it be wrong for you to give in to gossip, it would be evil for me to try to get you to do something wrong. If God were to tempt us to do wrong, he himself, he would be doing something evil, wouldn't he? But God can't do anything evil. As James points out, he can't even be tempted to do anything evil because that would be directly opposed to his character. God, we're told in the Bible time and time again, is holy. He's completely set apart from all that is evil. He can't be touched by it. He can't be affected by it. Just like a, a, a ray of light could shine down on a pile of garbage and not be affected by it, God is aware of evil. He can even be, be his presence can even be there in the midst of evil, but he's not contaminated by it because there is nothing evil in him. He is completely set apart. But someone might say, well, Okay, but God tests us, right? He tests us. And isn't testing the same as tempting? When I'm, when I'm faced with illness, when my car breaks down, when someone slandered me or falsely accused me, isn't that the same thing as temptation? But the reality is, it's actually not. You see, all of those testings or those trials that God may allow into your life, they're things that happen on the outside of you. An illness, car breaks down, someone has slandered me. All of these things, they can be opportunities for me to give in to the wrong decision. Decisions like getting angry with God for allowing me to be sick, allowing my my relative, my friend, my loved one to get sick. Or maybe uh, curse God for allowing my car to break down or take justice into my own hands and avenge myself because someone slandered my good name. The things that happen to me, they might be opportunities for me to do wrong, but the temptation, the desire to respond in a bad way well, that's something that happens on the inside. And when, when I'm talking about inside, I'm not just talking about inside your body, like, well, the, the, the virus is inside my body, so isn't that inside? What I'm talking about is inside of who you are as a person. That's what James is talking about in verse 14. He writes, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by something internal. He says, by his desire. Temptation doesn't come from God. Temptation comes from me. Temptation is not something that happens on the outside of me. Trials might be happening on the outside of me or even inside of my body, but temptation 
the desire to do wrong, that's happening inside of my inner self. And depending on what sinful desires, <laughs> what those desires of your heart are, you may or may not be tempted by something that you encounter on the outside of yourself. Years ago, my wife and I were, were at a dinner at, at, at one of her co-workers' houses. And we were sitting there, and uh, her, her, her co-worker had to run off and change or something like that. And a roommate came in and offered us some brownies. And I said something like, uh, no thanks, I, you know, I'll, I'll wait for, for dinner. But when the, the roommate left and Melissa's friend came back, she said, I'm so glad you didn't try those brownies. Because those are special brownies. And what she was saying was, those are pot or marijuana infused brownies and we went whoa now if i had the desire in my heart to get high on weed <laughs> if i had the desire in my heart to be influenced by this substance then i would have been facing temptation but because I didn't have any desire for brownies, those brownies that were sitting on the counter, they, because of that, they had no effect on me. They're just brownies that I knew I wouldn't be eating. And so temptation wasn't in the brownies. It would have been within whoever wanted to eat the brownies. And that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. The serpent was the one who lied about the fruit being good and God trying to prevent his creatures from becoming uh, more wise. There's nothing wrong with being wise. But Eve was the one who desired it. And she wanted what she believed God was keeping from her. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. The temptation, it wasn't the tree itself. That, that was the circumstance. That was the opportunity that was there. But the desire was inside of her. Just like the Bible says our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, our hearts, the desires within us, they lead us astray. And that's what James is getting at here. When we face temptation, it's not God. Trials that come into our lives don't justify us turning our backs on God in disobedience. If anything, they reveal to us all the more the internal problem that we have in trusting God. God from the very beginning. So we can't say, well, God allowed these circumstances into my life, so I guess it's okay for me to throw in the towel or panic and give up to walk away from my faith. I don't know what trial you're facing today. Maybe it is the coronavirus. Maybe it's some result of that. Maybe it's something else. But you can't look at the circumstances in your life and say, ah, see, God has let me down. I'm going to walk away. You can't do it. When it comes to temptation, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And then James goes on to spell out exactly what will happen if we give in to that desire. If we abandon our trust in God and give in to, give in to our temptation, and it's not good. 
It's better to trust and obey God through difficulty because of the life that he offers. It's also better to trust and obey God through difficulty because hard times don't justify our bad behavior. And it's better to trust and obey God through difficulty because doing it your way will kill you. It will kill you. Look at verse 14 again. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Giving into temptation is a deadly process. The first step is desire. We've already talked about that. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. That, that word that Paul uses for desire is epithumia. And it actually means lust. Now, when we use the term lust these days, it usually has this negative connotation, this sinful connotation. But it actually just refers to this deep, strong desire. And strong desires, God has actually given us, right? God gave us the desire for hunger, and hunger can be a very strong desire. He gave it to us so that we wouldn't starve. And God gave us the desire for rest, and the desire for rest, it can be very strong. Those eyes can start drooping, your mind can start wandering, you can feel like you have no energy whatsoever, you can barely move, and he gives us that strong desire so that we wouldn't run out of energy and die. And God gave us the desire for sex so that we wouldn't go extinct. But you see, we go wrong when we attempt to satisfy those desires, those God-given desires outside of God's will. It's really a failure to trust God and, and the way that he set up his way of doing things, his way that's good, and his way that uh, promises uh, good for us. See, eating, eating is good. But gluttony is not. Sleep is, is normal. It's good. Laziness is not. Getting married is great, but being intimate with someone outside of marriage, that's against God's will. Hebrews 13.4. So why do our desires go out of control and tempt us to go from being in God's will to being out of God's will? It's because of step two. First step was desire. Second step is deception. James writes, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Those, those words, lured and enticed, those are hunting and fishing words. They're attached to this idea of baiting a trap. Bait does two things. The first thing it does is it, it, it appeals to those natural desires. When you bait a hook, you put something on it that you think the fish are going to like. But bait, the second thing that it does is that it, it not only looks good and appeals to our natural desires, but it hides the consequences that will come from taking it. I've heard that sometimes fishermen will take a, a little marshmallow and they'll, they'll, they'll put it on the hook and they'll actually try to cover the entire hook so it's hidden so that the fish don't see the trap at all our hearts do that don't they 
they're deceitful, the Bible says. And isn't that the way it always is when you're tempted to bend the truth, to cover up that mistake? You don't think about the bigger consequences that are now going to be there when you get caught lying. Or when you stuff your face with hostess cupcakes, you're not thinking about the pounds that you're going to be putting on or the bad habit that you may be creating. Either you're not thinking about it or you're telling yourself that the pleasure of this moment is worth it, worth those consequences that are coming. Our hearts, they deceive us. They, they lure us towards sin. Desire, deception. Thirdly, disobedience. Step three is to act on your desire. He wrote, James wrote, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. We disobey. Desire may be a type of emotion, but disobedience is an act of the will. The children act on their feelings, don't they? When my daughter, my oldest daughter, was two years old, she'd get thirsty and she'd start screaming for a drink. Or when she got hungry, she'd demand food and demand it right this instant. Or when she needed a toy, wanted a toy, she'd go out and grab it out of the hands of some other poor kid. And her actions were clearly just purely the result of her feelings. One of the things that sets us apart, adults apart from children, other than our size, is that we're supposed to act on the basis of our will, aren't we? See, I may be hungry, but I wait until it's time for food, or when I can afford to buy food. Part of growing up is not simply doing things because you feel like it, but because you know it's either right or it's wrong. It's either hurtful or helpful. And that's what happens when we give in to temptation. We're making an intellectual decision to disobey God. And James says, once you've done that, you've locked in the consequences. You've locked them in. And that brings step four. Desire, deception, disobedience, and death. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is where sin always leads. Some people will tell you that all roads lead to God, and you can tell yourself that over and over again, but it's just not true. But I'll tell you one thing that is true. All sin leads to death. James uses this example of something being born. Humans give birth to humans, right? Just like monkeys give birth to monkeys and turtles to, to turtles. That's the way it is. That's the way it always has been. That's the way it works. In the same way, sin always gives birth to death. You can count on it. It's going to happen every time. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God has not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Numbers 32, 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. And Jesus said in Mark 4, 22, For nothing is sit hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come 
to light. We can tell ourselves over and over again that our circumstances justify our actions or that we can sneak by and avoid the consequences. But our hearts, they fill with desire. We're deceived into thinking that that desire will best be fulfilled outside of God's lines. And then we make a willful choice to take the bait and the end result is death. Our way is deadly. It's always been. That's why you and I need a savior in the first place. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4, he writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, you've recognized that his way, that leaving his way leads to death. And you've looked to the cross and you've trusted in the sacrifice that Jesus paid for your rebellion and, and you're now freed to live God's way, trusting and obeying him. Our way is the way of death. His way is the way of life and it's so much better. It's, it's bigger than the difference between dark and light, between a, a, a dead battery and full power. It's bigger than the difference between no connection at all and five full bars of reception. It's the difference between life and death. Blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial, those who trust and obey God through difficulty because they've stepped off the road towards death and are walking with the one who brings life. And that's exactly what James drives home in verses 16 to 18. Listen to this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's better, it's better to trust and obey God through difficulty because everything that is good comes from him. Don't be deceived, he says. Don't fall for the lies that tell you that you're better off on your own that God doesn't have your best interests in mind. That, that he's somehow holding you down uh, out to kill your joy and make your life miserable. James says, no, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good thing that you enjoy comes from God. It doesn't come from Apple or Samsung. And technology is great, isn't it? But think about where your ability to experience technology comes from. Your ability to, to see, to hear, to touch, 
to taste, to experience, be moved, be thrilled, be astonished. Think about it, where all of those come from. They come from the Father of lights, the one who created the sun and the moon and the stars that shine the light from above. And just like they shine down on this, uh, on this beautiful, they shine down this beautiful, life-giving light, just like that, God pours good things upon us. His people. But you know, unlike the lights in the sky, there's no variation in God. There's no shadow due to change. The sun, it's out for most of the day. It gradually moves away. If you've sat in a shady place on a hot day for any amount of time, you'll realize you're going to have to move after a little while because that sun is moving and your shade is moving with it. The moon, it reflects it reflects the light of the sun. But it changes. Sometimes it's bigger, sometimes it's smaller, sometimes it's not there at all. But God doesn't change. He doesn't change. And not only does God not change, but his good plan for us doesn't change either. You can count on it. You can rely on it. You can trust it. He's always been good. And he always will be. And the evidence is right here in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So you were dead in your sinful rebellion. You were separated. You were alienated. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this wasn't your own doing. You can't take any credit for it. It was of his own will, James says, that he brought us forth. You know, dead people, they don't even know they're dead. And they don't have the power to change their condition. And they don't even have the desire to change their condition. Just like no baby ever comes into the world by his or her own will, it's completely out of their hands. In the same way, it's only because God's good will that you have been brought from being hopelessly lost in rebellion against him into this life-giving, joy-filled, future-transforming relationship with him. And there's nothing better than that, right? There's nothing better. James says, God has given you the life-giving message of Jesus. Your trust is in him. He's lifted you out of the pit and your hope-filled transformed life is now a testimony to all creation that he is good. The greatest gift that you and I have ever been given is our salvation, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, but it has even a greater purpose, a greater purpose than us escaping eternal punishment. It was given so that all creation might see just how glorious and thoroughly good God is. 
James says, we're a kind of first fruits. Like a farmer might take a look at the first few pieces of fruit or or vegetables from his crop and see evidence as to how the rest is going to turn out. Those whom Jesus has saved were evidence of the glorious restoring work that the good unchanging God is going to bring about through all of his creation. He's good. He's proven it. You and I should trust him. We should even trust him when it seems like everything is falling apart. When it seems like terror is spreading. When it's growing all around us like a plague. When we are beginning to become uncertain as to whether or not we're going to be affected by it. And when we have to take precautions to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves safe or to care for our loved ones. We should trust him even then. Because he is good. And especially in those times, we should remain steadfast because those who are steadfast in the midst of trial are blessed. It's better to trust and obey God through difficulty, so much better to remain steadfast through the storm because of the life that he offers (laughs) and because hard times don't justify bad behavior Because doing it your way will kill you. And because everything that is good comes from him. Let's pray together. Lord, we are in a strange time. We are in a a difficult time. We're not even together in the same room this morning because there there is danger And yet in the midst of that, Lord, we know that you are good. We see evidence of that. And we see the greatest evidence of that in our own faith, in the fact that you have brought us from death to life. You've saved us from the greatest virus, the greatest obstacle, the greatest danger known to humankind. Lord, you will be faithful to us through this. Lord, you've prepared a place for us. You have a future, an eternal future lined up for us. And we are so thankful, Lord. May our confidence be in you as we walk through this difficult time. Lord, may we we represent you well as we interact with others who are giving into fear. May we care for them, Lord. And may we point to the incredible hope the only hope, the only true hope that exists in you as we share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And as we walk into the future, into the next few days and weeks, Lord, we trust you, we love you, we want our lives to exist only for you, giving you glory and bringing good to others, Lord. Empower us to share the hope, to teach the truth, and to serve our mighty King. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.